with my first one, it was my first, you know, go around with being pregnant. And in the two weeks between when you get pregnant and when you show positive on a test, I'm like, well, I had a beer or I went in a jacuzzi. Was that it? Or like, you know, did I exercise too much? Did I exercise not enough? Was I eating something incorrectly? Like, did I, you know, did I eat goat cheese that wasn't properly heated? Like, you know, um, all kinds of things that you latch onto. And they've actually done studies where they just survey people on their beliefs about pregnancy loss. And the vast majority of people think that it's caused by a certain thing. It was something like 60% thought it was related to a stressful event. So having stressful event in your life causes a miscarriage or 70% thought it could be it, it could be caused by lifting a heavy object. So just it's interesting how much the general public wants to believe that pregnancy loss is caused by something specific. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Kim Hooper. She's the co-author of All the Love, Healing Your Heart and Finding Meaning After Pregnancy Loss, which will be released on March 23rd. She is also the author of five novels. Her debut, People Who Knew Me, was hailed by the Wall Street Journal as refreshingly raw and honest. Her fifth novel, No Hiding in Boise, will be released on June 15th. Kim lives in Southern California with her husband, daughter, and a collection of pets. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you're here. And Thank you. I wanted to ask you, yes, yes. It, was this your first nonfiction work? Yes. Um, and actually the first time I had really felt compelled to write something book length that was nonfiction. I've done some nonfiction essays, a lot about motherhood, especially during the pandemic. I've, I've published some essays on Scary Mommy, that kind of thing. But this was the first time I ever felt compelled to write something book length nonfiction. I always thought I was purely a novelist, fiction writer. <laughs> um, but um, now I feel, you know, drawn to nonfiction in ways that, you know, can help other people. And um, that was really the goal with this book. Yeah. And and before we, we dig in, because we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about this work and your experience, but you were young when you started writing. Do I have that correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, I was writing, obviously, in the most basic ways as a kid. Um, but I always loved storytelling. Like I remember back in third grade, that was kind of when it clicked. Cause I remember we had this story assignment where we had to write our own version of fairy tales. Um, so to take like a classic fairy tale and then to rethink it. And I remember how much I just loved doing the assignment. And I remember reading it in front of the class. And normally I had been such a shy kid, but I was so excited to get in front of that class. So I kind of just, yeah, I just kind of knew from a young age, um, that I really liked expressing myself through stories. Um, but I didn't really write, you know, like, I guess you could say professionally or what, you know, I didn't actually aspire to anything like publication until my twenties, but yeah, I I've been writing since I was a kid. I, I, I don't know what I would do without it. It feels kind of like my therapy. When you were writing your novels, I, I assume that the experiences that you now talk about in this new book were occurring while you were creating in this fiction realm, right? Yes. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So you're saying the events that from the nonfiction book were occurring while I was writing my fiction, right? Yes. Yes. So that it's kind of weird how they all intersect. So my first book, 
um, I had written before I experienced any of the losses, the pregnancy losses that contributed to my nonfiction book. But the launch party for the book was actually a month after I had lost my son. Um, in I, I lost him in the second trimester and I was just devastated. And I think part of the grief was that I also couldn't celebrate my book in the way that I wanted because I was grieving this monumental loss. So, um, you know, it was just, it was weird how they kind of intersected from that point forward. So my other books, I, I published three books after that. They're all about grief. Like I have not been able to get away from the subject of grief based on my experiences. Um, so me personally, looking at the books I've written, you can kind of see where my personal life events have kind of intersected with the stories I tell. When you were writing those books, um, did you have any thoughts about possibly writing a book about your experience. Now, I know your experience built up over time, and we're going to talk about that in a minute because you had, you know, this happened to you, these losses happened to you and started to accumulate. But well before you ever wrote this book, co-authored this book that is now coming out, did you have a sense that you might talk about this in a, in a, an open and public forum? I had thought about it. Um, Meredith Resnick, who's actually my co-author on the book, she, she's been a friend of mine for... Um, know, probably about 10, 12 years. Um, and we had met in kind of like a writer's, uh, not like a workshop. It was more like a little story presentation, um, thing called dime stories. And she had said when I had gone through my first loss, which was an ectopic pregnancy and was really traumatic for me, medically, emotionally, all that stuff. Um, she had said, you know, you should consider writing about this. Like you could do like little entries to kind of about different parts of the experience. And I could contribute in terms of like providing the therapeutic, like the therapist on your shoulder, kind of commenting on your experience and offering insight. And I thought like, that's an awesome idea, but I didn't feel like I had enough like space. Like I felt like my story was just, I was in the middle of my story. So yeah. I kind of had to live and live through some things and experience some things. I didn't know that I was going to go on to have three more pregnancy losses. And then, you know, I mean, I finally had a healthy daughter. So there's a happy ending to the, to the story. But I didn't really think about, you know, putting together the whole of the book until I kind of had some of that experience sort of like a little bit of distance from the experience. Yes. Sometimes you really do need that time for the experience to sort of morph or cure or develop or whatever word you want to use before you're able to kind of approach it in the way that you will ultimately write about it. Um, I think sometimes it can be too raw and too fresh for a book length work on it. Totally. And what's what's hard is that sometimes when you're in the midst of that really emotional event, uh, you know you're in the midst of it, but you still feel such a pull to write about it because it is so therapeutic to write about it. So it's tempting to think like, I'm going to write a book about this right now. Um, and I guess it's good to write about it, but to also have some distant perspective of like, this might not be the memoir or the complete book until I have some space. So it's like, write, write your heart out through the process of it, kind of knowing that there's like a whole evolution to it becoming whatever quote unquote work it ends up being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you about that. Uh, you know, when you, before you started trying for a family, what were your thoughts about having children, getting pregnant? What was your, your maybe expectation about what that was going to be like? About, yes, about having um, a family, being a mom. Yeah. I mean, I was always conflicted about whether I wanted children or not. So I always kind of envision, I'm a very introverted person, very kind of in my head, um, 
you know, the typical kind of writer who wants to sit at her desk and quiet. And I was very well aware from a young age that having a child was not always conducive to quiet time. So um, I, I think I was always kind of on the fence, like, oh, I, you know, I can see myself having one child, but I can also see myself being okay with not having children. So when my husband and I got married, I, it kind of started formulating more as an idea in my head as something that I wanted. Um, both of his parents passed away when we want his dad passed away before we got married, right before, and his mom passed away right after we got married. So his dad had ALS and his mom had Parkinson's. So we were kind of went through the ringer of these traumatic things and something about like seeing them and kind of being that close to death in a way made me just really crave having a family and kind of bringing life. So, you know, we said, let's go for it. You know, we really want to have a baby. Like life is just so fragile, so short. Like we do have this love in our hearts to give to a child. So, you know, I didn't, when we made the decision, I thought that was the hard part. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, (laughs) I've now made this decision. Like now, okay, I'm going to, going to get pregnant and have a child. I can look at it now as the universe kind of teaching me lessons of that it didn't go as smoothly as I had thought. And, you know, my losses kind of ended up making me really grateful and really just so thankful for every moment I get with my daughter um, because it was a lot to get to this point. Um, So I definitely did not expect. I don't think any woman, even when you know the the statistics, you just don't expect a pregnancy loss to happen to you. So, um, I was just shocked. Yeah. Well, also, I think if I've got this right, your first pregnancy was ectopic and you also lost part of your fallopian tube. Yes. So, yeah, my first one was ectopic and that was um, an emergency surgery type situation. So, yeah, they went in. They said I had already started bleeding internally, which is kind of, you know, it's just it's it's like the leading cause of maternal death in the first trimester. So I didn't know serious thing. Yeah. And I mean, I'm lucky to be living in the time I'm living. I mean, if this had been a hundred years ago, I would have died if, you know, in other countries, um, you know, women die of this. So yeah, I'd never had major surgery and they went in there and, um, I woke up and they said, we, you know, we had to take out the whole tube on my, on my left side, um, just because of the size of the embryo and, um, you know, the damage that had already been done. So yeah, it was traumatic. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and and I, I pulled this quote from your book. Uh, early in the book, uh, you write, confession, before my losses, whenever I heard of someone having a miscarriage, I wondered if it was something she had done. And I, I, after all of this time has passed and what you've been through, what is your understanding of why we do that kind of thing, why we think those things in terms of blame? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a a search for control. Um, I think the acceptance of the fact that sometimes bad things just happen for no rhyme or reason is terrifying to a lot of us. So I think it's almost better in a weird, sick and twisted way to think that it's us, like to, to assign the blame to ourselves, because then at least it's this explainable thing. Like if you, if there's no blame and it just happens, it's kind of like, well, what else yeah. is going to happen? It, it just makes all of life seem very um, fragile and overwhelming. And, you know, for a type A person like me, it, it like really um, was upsetting, like very, it kind of shook my worldview about like, you know, nobody is kind of immune to this and you can follow all the rules. Like you can do everything correctly. And, you know, sometimes these things just happen and it really, there's just no um, logic to it. 
it's it's weird to come to that side because I do kind of now see how people kind of cling to reasons and they cling to, you know, and because I, I, it's just terrifying to have no reason. It's it's terrifying. So how did you decide, OK, let me let's do this again. Let's try again. Oh, man, that was <laughs> after each loss. I said, I'm not doing this again. But then there was something and I'm not a super like woo woo person. I don't I'm, I'm not like super spiritual, but I do believe in kind of like some kind of bigger power or universe or something, but I would just get this sense of like, I'm not done. Like I I'm, there's some, there's, I'm supposed to have this child. So, um, after some time would pass, I would kind of approach Chris, my husband and say, you think we should try this again? And then we would consult with the doctors and, you know, kind of figure out like a plan and kind of tentatively go into it. The second time it was kind of easier to do that because, you know, we thought, oh, we'd had this first loss. What are the chances of having another one? And then um, my second loss was an early miscarriage, which, you know, you, you hear and you, my previous thought was that a miscarriage was a woman goes to the bathroom. She sees blood. She's like, oh my gosh. And that's it. Um, I didn't realize it could be this extended medical event. My, it was a missed miscarriage, meaning I had no symptoms. So the embryo had passed and I didn't know. And my body just did not want to let go of the pregnancy. So it was, um, I mean, I could have had a DNC surgery to remove everything, but I, you know, thought, oh, let's do it naturally, quote unquote. And it was like two months before I could take a pregnancy test and it would show that I was not pregnant. So, oh, so it was kind of a really slow process. So slow and just, um, you know, and you're thinking of the hormone fluctuations during that time and just like what your body and your spirit are kind of going through in that process. So it just kind of changed my thought on what a miscarriage is. I wonder like how you were able to, how attached had you gotten to this idea of the second baby when, when this miscarriage happened? Right. I mean, like I said, I was not expecting a second loss. So I had already, when I found out we were pregnant, I was like, well, this is the one we kind of quote unquote paid our dues. So I did kind of get attached right, right away, you know, and then with subsequent pregnancies, I didn't have as much of an attachment because I think I was just sort of like, you know, fool me once, shame on you, you know, fool me twice. Like I just was kind of tentative, but um, that second one, I definitely got attached. It's kind of like, once you see the dark side, you kind of do sort of feel the, the desire to kind of hold back over time. And so how much time passed between your second loss and the third, your son? Yeah. So, um, I'm trying to think, I know there was a year between my first and my third. So my third pregnancy was the one that went the longest and everything seemed like it was going fine. Um, he was a boy, his name was miles. Um, and, uh, in my second trimester, they said that my fluid was low and I didn't really, again, understand what that meant. They said, just go home, rest for two weeks. We'll hope the fluid levels improve. So I went home and I was kind of, I had no signs or symptoms of anything being wrong. So I was kind of just trying to maintain some hope, but I had sort of this like intuitive thing in the back of my head, um, a couple days after that appointment where I thought, I just feel like the baby has passed. Like I just something, I just don't feel like something is right. And I kept trying to override that. Like, well, there's no signs of anything going wrong. Like it, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Like I'm resting, I'm drinking a lot of water. I'm, you know, doing whatever I can. So by the time we went back to the appointment, I had kind of like buoyed myself with these kind of hopes that everything would be fine. And 
when he said, uh, it still gives me chills. Like when he said, Kimberly, I'm, I'm not seeing a heartbeat and nobody calls me Kimberly. And I remember in that moment, I was just like fixated on that. I'm like, you don't even know me like, and you're giving me this terrible news and it just cannot be real. Like just this feeling of like, this cannot be happening. Um, and I mean, it was just dreadful. It, dreadful. Like anytime I hear about this now, like women going through this, it's just, my heart goes out to them because again, it's not a straightforward process, especially in the second trimester. Um, he said I could deliver him or I could have surgery and, uh, I chose the surgery and it's something I regret a bit. I I kind of wish that I had delivered him just so I could have seen him. But, um, you know, in the moment, I think I was just so, I just wasn't thinking, you know, like long-term. I mean, I mean, how, what was your husband's reaction at oh. this point? And, you know, I kind of get a sense of where were you, where you were on this path, like with each of these pregnancies and these losses. What was he up to? How yeah, was he feeling? He, my husband is the, the stoic type. <laughs> so I think he saw me kind of, you know, I don't know, so emotional. And he said to me later, I'm so used to you being a rock and seeing you kind of fall apart was so like upsetting and unnerving for me. So, um, he was kind of trying to like go about life as usual. And I was of course, resentful of this, like, how was he functioning? But, um, I think he was shocked and I think just, um, sad, but in a way he felt like he had to kind of stay strong for me and sort of distract me or, you know, I think he, he had a hard time just sitting with me as I was dealing with, you know, the anxiety about trying again, mourning the losses that had already happened. Um, it was definitely a disconnect in our marriage for that time, which is why in the book, we have a whole section about, you know, connecting with your partner after a loss and, you know, talking about whether you want to try again and all of that, because that, that was very hard for us as a couple. Well, I would imagine that is. I know stress in general and uh, family family issues are really hard on a on a couple. Anything with children is, especially and especially when you 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 had this happen to you in in such quick succession. Did you have a time when you just weren't doing okay? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, grief is grief is hard. And yeah, to to go back to what you were saying about the couples. I mean, it's very rare. I think for both people in a couple to grieve in the same way. So in a way you're, you're grieving, not just the loss, but also grieving this disconnection with your spouse who is not doing it in a way that you feel is the right way. Um, I mean, with distance, I look at it and I'm like, there's no right or wrong way to grieving. Everybody does it differently. Like some people are like me who are just in tears and, you know, having kind of a hard time getting through days. And then there's people who like my husband are, you know, kind of busying themselves with tasks, anything to feel kind of like productive in the wake of this, you know, this wake, the wake of this tragedy. So, um, you know, that's, that's really hard, but yeah, I mean, I, I was not okay. I resumed therapy at that point. Um, and I remember the message I left from my therapist who I hadn't seen in, in quite some time. And I said, um, something really bad happened to me. <laughs> and then I felt like I couldn't go on, but I also didn't want to like leave her a voicemail that just said that. So, um, I just remember kind of crying through the message, um, trying to explain to her what had happened. And she, you know, got back to me right away and, you know, said, come in. <laughs> and I, I needed that. Yeah. 
did you and your husband, how did you guys, how did you two find your way back uh, enough to, I guess, decide that you wanted to have another child? Yeah, I mean, each time it was hard. And I think it's hard when you have multiple losses because it's kind of like a cumulative effect. And, um, you know, you're sort of balancing the hope for another pregnancy with kind of like the sadness of the ones that have already passed. And um, it's all kind of mixed in there. So I don't really have like a, like a, an easy recipe to follow for how to get through that kind of murkiness. Um, we went to a grief counselor who's somebody who specialized in couples and grief. And frankly, I mean, it was good to go through the motions of going together because it felt like we were tackling this as a team, but really I feel like a lot of the healing between us just sort of happened over time and in little admissions. So like when he admitted to me that like, you know, you're my rock. So seeing you crumble is very upsetting to me. And I thought like, oh, that makes sense. Like, and his pulling away is his discomfort with, you know, not being able to fix me and not being able to make it better. And, you know, it's just his reflection of his like powerlessness. So I think just seeing, having more compassion for what the other person was going through and kind of trying to, instead of saying, well, why aren't you more this Kind of, yes. Well, also thank goodness that he was able to convey that because I feel when people go to their corners or or bunker up, you know, that's when things get worse. And even though he might not have been as, uh, you know, weepy or as open about it, the fact that he could tell you, this is kind of what's happening here for me, that's enough to even bring you a little closer, you know? Yeah. Yes. I mean, ultimately, I think it did bring us closer, but. I, it's like, I don't like to, you know, it's kind of like when people in movies and books kind of portray depression as this sort of like romantic experience where, you know, you're just sort of sad and you're reading and writing in your journal and you're sleeping a lot. And, and, you know, then you, you emerge from the depression and like, I don't really think people portray the accuracy of it. So it's like, I don't want to make it seem like, Oh yeah, we were just comforting each other and it made us so strong. Oh no. I mean, um, (laughs) no, I mean, I, I mean, how long did you, I mean, I'm also curious because we talked in the beginning of our conversation about blame and assigning reasons for things. Did you blame yourself at all? Were you, did you escape your own Oh, blame. yeah. I mean, like I said, it's much easier to blame myself than to admit that there's nothing to blame. So, oh, yeah, I, it was all over the place. I have a little section in the book where I kind of do like a bulleted list of all the things that I thought like caused my losses. So it's like with my first one, it was my first, you know, go around with being pregnant. And in the two weeks between when you get pregnant and when you show positive on a test, I'm like, well, I had a beer or I went in a jacuzzi. Was that it? Or like, you know, did I exercise too much? Did I exercise not enough? Was I eating something incorrectly? Like, did I, you know, did I eat goat cheese that wasn't properly heated? Like, you know, um, all kinds of things that you latch onto. And they've actually done studies where they just survey people on their beliefs about pregnancy loss. And the vast majority of people think that it's caused by a certain thing. It was something like 60% thought it was related to a stressful event. So having stressful event in your life causes a miscarriage or 70% thought it could be, it, it could be caused by lifting a heavy object. So just, it's interesting how much the general public wants to believe that pregnancy loss is caused by something specific. It's yes. controllable. Yeah, it's right. controllable, right? So how did you, how did you, I don't know, crawl back from that? What, what started to shift a little bit for um, you? Well, I, I think just 
honestly, it's just kind of getting through each day and going to therapy and writing about it to myself. Not, not like with any purpose of a book in mind, but just kind of journaling for myself, um, taking the time after each loss to kind of like really get back and centered to what I wanted and what, you know, what my, what was okay for my body to go through and my mind, making sure Chris and I were in an okay spot. And, but you know, each subsequent pregnancy came with a hope, but also a whole lot of anxiety. I mean, when I got pregnant with my daughter, she was my fifth pregnancy you know, I was happy and things seemed to be going well, but I, I felt like I was just holding my breath the entire time. So, so I definitely feel like I, I still have sadness that I never really got that like super fun pregnancy experience that I imagine some women sure. get. Did you have the same doctor for your fifth pregnancy? No, I, I, um, the doctor who told me that Miles had passed, I could not look at his face again. Like I could not go through that. So I started over with another doctor who was very supportive and I just felt like, okay, this is kind of like a fresh start. Um, and I mean, I still had a loss. I had a second ectopic pregnancy for my fourth pregnancy. Um, but he was super supportive through that and just kind of like, you know what, like, it's great that you're, you know, you continue to get pregnant. Like, you know, let's try to keep some <laughs> hope alive. And I just sort of knew that I had to keep going. So when I got pregnant with my daughter, um, I mean, my doctor said, you know, everything is looking good. He still set me up with like a specialist who could do more intensive monitoring just for my own peace of mind. And looking back, it didn't, it did help me feel better, but I also realized it was like an illusion of control because no specialist was going to prevent <laughs> anything from going wrong. It was just sort of like nice to know that I was being watched so carefully. Did you have any moments of peace during that fifth pregnancy? Yeah. Could you relax? Um, I think like once I passed the point when Miles had passed, I sort of was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to spend the whole rest of this pregnancy in fear. Like it's not, it's not fair to my daughter. Um, I want to connect with her. I, I felt like her spirit, she just seemed kind of like a light energetic spirit. And I kind of just wanted to, you know, I thought it would be a disservice to her and myself if I just was like caving in and anxiety and just sort of, you know, <laughs> Yeah. So I did kind of let myself a little bit enjoy the um, second half of the pregnancy more, but I was still worried. I, I refused to have a baby shower, which confused everyone, but I just, I just couldn't <laughs> get like, I, I, I just thought it would be a jinx. Um, and I know that doesn't make any logical sense. And again, like. Not at all. I mean, in, in, in the, in a Jewish tradition, actually, I'm Jewish and in, yeah. in, in, in some areas, you know, in some Jewish families, you're not even supposed to have a baby gift enter the home until the baby comes yep. home. Yeah. I mean, we, I, we actually talk about that. Meredith writes about that in the book too. Yeah. Other cultures, it's considered kind of, you know, like don't do that. Um, and I kind of still feel that way. I, I'm still not super stoked about baby shower. I don't know. I, I'm always supportive of, of the parents, of course, but it, it's sort of, I have a hard time enjoying the fun and games of baby showers. Cause I just think yeah. it's sort of a serious thing to bring a life into the world. And I guess I just have a lot of respect for the whole process of it. But yeah, some yeah. of it is probably just envy that I never kind of got that carefree experience. Mm -hmm. The like kind of simple version of yeah. what people think it the is. The Pinterest yeah. pregnancy. <laughs> I didn't get that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I, I'm sure this question is really uh, multifaceted, but what are some of the biggest ways you feel you've changed since you've experienced these losses and now this, this birth, how old is your daughter? Yeah, she just turned three in October. So she is in that, oh, yeah, wow. she's in that three, three major <laughs> stage of, 
uh, expressing <laughs> herself and um, having a wide range of emotions right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm sure to say the least. So uh, when you think back on, you know, who you were before you embarked on, on beginning your family and who you are now, aside from just, you know, general years passing, how do you feel you've changed? Oh, yeah, in so many ways. And I kind of say this because, I mean, sometimes people kind of push people when they're in the midst of grief, like, oh, this is all going to mean something. And I kind of feel like when you're in the midst of grief, like that does not help. Like you just want somebody to sit with you when you're sad and kind of acknowledge your loss and witness your grief and not rush you through it. But once in your own time and space, like in my own time and space, I've definitely kind of created meanings um, from the losses. Like I, I think I've become a way more grateful person, a way more compassionate person, because I've kind of realized like, again, how fragile life is and how many people, not just women, but people are going through their days with tragedies that nobody knows about. So, I mean, I would go to work after my losses and, you know, a lot of the times nobody even knew what I was going through physically or, um, mentally. Um, and I just kind of think that now when I see people, like everyone has something that they're kind of dealing with. Um, so I feel like it's made me more compassionate, more empathetic, a way better mother. You know, if, if my first pregnancy had gone well and everything had been textbook and, you know, I hadn't had this jolt to the system, as you said, um, I, I don't know if I would have appreciated motherhood in the way that I do. Like, I really think it's made me a more patient mother, more loving, more like really in awe of my body, like just respectful of my body yes. and all that it's been through. Like what a warrior. I mean, it just, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's just made me so respectful of, you know, the miracle of, 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 of this type of thing. It's just amazing. Yeah. And for you, do you feel like everyone in your family like, do you feel like you're all set now or do you f still feel that need that you want to keep trying for another child? No. So after we had my daughter, like two months after she was born, I told my husband, you need to get a vasectomy because I just knew I like lucked out having this beautiful, healthy daughter. I lucked out and I just did not want to go through the pain again. Like I just felt like I'm done. Like I have been through this long journey and this process and um, I feel complete. I don't know if I can handle the anxiety and the pain of another loss, especially while my daughter is alive and has to witness me going through that. I just, I just felt like it was, we were, we were good. We were done. <laughs> what, is there something that you have learned now or that you understand now that would have helped the grieving, the, the, in the heart of it grieving time? Yeah. And it, yeah, I did it's something I still struggle with because I, I have a hard time. I'm really coming to understand that you have to let every emotion you feel just be what it is. Um, I think grieving really taught me that. And it's something, like I said, I'm still kind of learning because I still have days when I'm down about something and I think, oh my gosh, am I now like a depressive person, you know, in general, instead of just accepting, like I'm having a bad day. Um, and during grief, I think just just acknowledging that like all your feelings are valid. Like they're all valid. Like the enormity of the loss is valid and feeling, you know, this immense pain, even though people are like, well, you know, at least it was early or at least this, or, you know, you'll get pregnant again. Like it's, it's okay. If you don't feel better when people say those things, it's okay. If you think that this loss is huge and your feelings are valid, your feelings are valid period. Um, so I feel like that's just something I've kind of, 
learned and looking back, I really was fighting the grief. Like I was kind of trying to kind of bombard myself with toxic positivity, (laughs) just sort of like, (laughs) you know, come on, you can do it. Like, you know, let's go read some affirmations and, you know, get back on the horse. You know, like I I just was like rushing myself and kind of letting myself absorb a lot of those messages. Like everything happens for a reason. And, you know, maybe next time will be better or maybe it's for the best or what. And, and really, I just wish I had just let myself feel sad, even if I felt like other people were like, why are you so sad? Um, Because I think it just would have been a smoother time for me to not fight so much of what I thought were like, well, why am I this sad? Or why am I this angry? Or why am I that like, I was kind of judgmental of my own feelings. So well, I think that a lot of us don't have, I mean, I, this is kind of a strange thing to say, but if we're lucky, we don't have a lot of experience with grief. Yeah. And then a lot of people don't really talk about how to approach it. And I think there's more conversation about it now. At least I feel really lucky to have been involved in these conversations because of the people I get to interview. So I'm learning more about it and the process of grief. But it also can be, I don't know if it's like a nature or a nurture thing for you, if maybe there were things that you just didn't learn how to do yeah from your family of origin. Yes. And I think my family of origin, like many families of origin, (laughs) I think, uh, wasn't fully embracing of the broad spectrum of emotion. Like I kind of felt like I was often told I was too sensitive. So I kind of grew up with a kind of sense that whatever level of feeling I had was too much. Um, so I think I've carried that with me and it's something I'm, you know, continually working on to try to just accept the way I feel and not compare it to somebody else or how they're reacting to something, um, especially on yeah. social media, because we all know that that's not reality. <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot, a lot of us come from families that sort of, you know, want to focus on the positive and aren't really there meeting us with where we are and the, and the feelings that we have in the moment. And of course, that's all generational. It comes from how they were raised. And, you know, I've had, sure. I've had long talks with my parents about that. I mean, they came from families that, you know, were not did not discuss emotions at all. Um, So I do feel like it's improving collectively that more and more people are getting more comfortable with talking about feelings. And I think that's translating to family relationships and all of that. So that makes me, that's encouraging. Yeah. And did you, you know, before I shift gears to talk just a little bit more about the book, did you ever have a, did you have times during the hardest portions of this grief and your losses where you just didn't know if you were going to ever feel better? Oh yeah. I mean, and my husband felt that way about me too. I mean, he, he said in retrospect, like I kind of did a little interview with him and I included some snippets of what he said in my little interview with him in the book. Oh, that's yeah. So I would write on something in the book and then I would include like his response. Um, and he said, I mean, you know, am I ever going to have my wife back? Like, this, you know, and I feel for that now. I think at the time I was like, whoa, are you only worried about yourself? And I was, you know, I was kind of like not (laughs) having patience for that. But in retrospect, I mean, Mm. it's very scary to see yourself, you know, becoming somebody that you essentially have never seen yourself be before. Um, I had never gone through grief of this magnitude or grief of really any magnitude before this. So um, I can see how it was scary for me to see myself like that. And then for my husband to be like, wow, I'm used to, you know, Kim being this strong person. And she just seems like she's just been knocked to the floor. Um, And yeah, I did wonder, am I going to be able to get back up? Like, what, what does this look like? And I think that's what I mean about accepting where you are. Like if you're on the ground during grief and you've been knocked down and you're just 
feeling that way, just accept it and sort of try to trust that it's not always going to be that way. It's abstract and it's hard because like I said, I'm type A, I want there to be like, you know, tomorrow you will feel this way and the next day you will feel that way. And I want it to all make sense, but grief does not make sense. It is a kind of a jumbled mess. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And all encompassing too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what do you and Meredith, I know Meredith is not here, your co-author to talk about this right now, but what is your intention? What do you hope this book can do? Yeah. So Meredith is um, my main co-author. And we also had a contributor, uh, my friend, psychologist, Dr. Hong Depp. Um, and um, so the three of us, I think we all kind of really want this book to feel like we describe it as like part memoir, part therapy session. So it you go through kind of my experience and different aspects of my losses. And then they're sort of like the therapist's like I said, on my shoulder, who are kind of commenting on my experience and helping make sense of some of the things that I share from like a therapeutic point of view. Um, It's kind of, and the book covers a vast, I mean, you've seen, you've seen an advanced copy. It it covers. Yes. So many, so many subtopics and so many different chapters. Right. And so, I mean, the, the idea is that there's a really, you know, comprehensive table of contents that if you're somebody who's going through this loss, whether you're a spouse or a friend or, you know, the person going through it, Um, that you can flip to a section that speaks to you. So, I mean, we have sections on, you know, sex after pregnancy loss. We have sections on like, you know, a a pregnancy that happens after you've had a loss and managing the emotions of that. We have, you know, sections on, um, you know, how to go back to regular life, whether it's going back to work or uh, talking to friends who are having babies or, you know, kind of different things that come up because I just felt like pregnancy loss touches so many parts of life. And, I wanted to make kind of like a comprehensive guide. Um, we've had some people tell us it's kind of like what to expect when you're expecting, but for pregnancy loss, um, which <laughs> yeah, it is, I, I remember yeah. reading that book and it, it's the same thing. It kind of has a big table of contents and you can kind of like look up the thing yes. that you're looking for and then go find it. And what's interesting about this book is it's so well-researched. Um, we did we spent a lot of time talking to people who have actually been through this. We've done a lot of interviews. It's it's very comprehensive. I'm super proud of it. Um, it. It's It's been a real passion project. And I think our goal is just to have people feel comforted and seen and validated. And um, I mean, there's parts that will make them laugh. There's parts that will make them cry. <laughs> it's, um, you know, like I said, just a real passion project. And we're all like very excited about it. Is there any... Is there anything else that I I haven't touched on that you feel you want to see change when it comes to caring for women who've experienced these kinds of losses? Yeah. Well, I think we spend a lot of time. Well, (laughs) that's a big question. (laughs) Um, So, I I mean, I think we've come a long way in terms of people talking about and raising their hand and saying, I have had a miscarriage. I think there's some or, you know, a pregnancy loss, stillbirth. um, um, But I think there's some exploration of what happens once you've st- you've made that declaration. So how do we support people going through this? What does the general society kind of have to know to support grievers? There's things like, I mean, why isn't there leave at work for pregnancy loss? Um, I mean, leave in general for any kind of bereavement is usually terrible, but um, it's kind of like, what what are we doing collectively to support people who are in grief of this? What are their, what improvements can doctors make in the way they talk to patients? There's a lot of clinical language around pregnancy loss that just makes women feel terrible, like, um, you know, in, incompetent cervix, um, you know, irritable uterus, like just things that, I mean, are just 
you know, or even just a doctor referring to your pregnancy as not a baby, but just like, you know, like I remember on my surgery packet with Miles, it said like fetal demise. And I was like, that is the most depressing pair of words I have ever seen. Like, it's just, you know, you lost your baby. You kind of want, you know, to not be a clinical case study. So there's so many things that I feel like we could get better as a society. We can get better, you know, with doctor relationships, um, companies and government sort of supporting people through loss. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that I feel like could be improved. It is such a common thing. I mean, they say one in four pregnancies ends in loss and, um, with that many people going through it, I just think there could be, we could do better. We could do better. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think you made a really good point about those terms that people use, doctors use for the pregnancy loss. And a lot of that has a little bit of blame, oh, those yeah. words. You know, there's irritable. Oh, yeah. Even <laughs> like, the word miscarry, you know, miscarry. It's like mistake. Like yes. you did something wrong. Like you, you carried something incorrectly. Um, yes. It's, it's that's why we always say pregnancy loss because it's a loss. Um, and I think we can, you know, but we talked a lot about that. Like, well, I mean, everybody uses the term miscarriage, so we're not going to not use it, but we really do think that calling it that is kind of, you know, implying some sort of blame in a subtle way. Um, yeah. And I think women feel a lot of shame about that. Cause I mean, there's all kinds of other messages we're given about this is, this is our, our job as women is to carry babies and, you know, it, it can feel very uh, defeating and demoralizing when you feel like you're failing at your grand purpose. <laughs> yes. Well, I really, I hope, you know, that the people who can most uh, feel better from this book find yeah. it. I hope that it it's the kind of book where people start to understand it's a, an incredible resource and that it's something people can turn to. I mean, I really hope that that's what happens with this yeah, book. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, that's my that's my goal is to just have the people who need it be able to get it, um, and um, just kind of spread the word. And for doctors to even be able to, yes, like, wouldn't it be amazing if doctors who who have patients who are uh, experiencing this can you know tell them, hey, this is a great resource for yep. you. Yeah, I've started um, reaching out to some doctors yeah. just that I know to just say, I don't know if you would want this as something. I mean, I'll give you free copies. I don't know if this is something you would want in your practice to just kind of um, lend support to people going through this. So yeah, that's that's the goal. Yeah, so Kim, where can uh, listeners find you and information on the book? Where's the best way to connect with you? Um, I'm personally, uh, my website is kimhooperwrites.com. Um, and I have a blog there and contact and all of that. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Kim Hooper Writes. We also have a website for the book, allthelovefterloss.com. And you can find buy links there. All the love is available, you know, wherever books are sold. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram at all the love talk. Okay, great. And I'll tag everything in my show notes and on the website so people can find your links that way too. So thank you so yeah, much. And I'm you. so excited to know that this episode is going to air on the day that your book is released. So Yay. that's really exciting. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for being my guest. And I'm really happy that you found your way to doing this work. Yeah. I know. Thank you for recognizing it and for having me. I love talking about it. So. <laughs> thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 